All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your Possessed by Old One speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This month, we are back to talk about the first volume of the comic book, Monstrous, which is written by Marjorie Liu, and with absolutely, I mean, just absolutely stunning art by Sana Takeda. This first volume is titled Awakening, and it was published in 2016. And you probably know already that Marjorie Liu is a big presence in urban fantasy. I mean, she's written something like 15 novels across two series. And she's also written a lot of comics besides this one, besides Monstrous, including a lot of X-Men work across a variety of titles. But the only work of hers that I'd, I'd actually read coming into this podcast was her very short run on a, a standalone Black Widow comic that came out 10 years ago, back in 2010. So I was really interested to to see what she's been up to, to see what she's done outside of the, the, the espionage story. So I think without much more preamble, let's just get straight into it. Let's uh, get into Monstrous Awakening. Monstrous is a fantasy book. It, it takes place entirely in a self-contained secondary world. It's not our world. It is, I guess, it is possible that it's an imaginary distant future of our world, but at least here in this first volume, that is not clear and it does not matter. So, okay, this world is pre-industrial, but still it's densely populated and highly sophisticated, and it's also obsessed with religious dogma and with magic. So it really feels a lot to me like the 17th century, uh, Europe in the 17th century, to be precise. Well, there aren't any combustion engines or heavy industry. There are guns, and there's at least one massive airship, though everyone else that we see is using horse-drawn wagons. Now, gradually, we'll come to understand that there are four biological groups in this world, uh, what D&D, of course, likes to call races. There are humans, and we're beginning in a human city. But then there are the ancients, who are anthropomorphic animals. Uh, we'll, we'll meet a wolf, and uh, we'll meet a monkey later. They are magical, and they are immortal, and basically, they're the high elves of this world. The next group is the Arcanics, who are hybrids of ancient and humans, uh, something that was biologically impossible until suddenly it wasn't. Uh, and, th and that's a new development from not that long ago. And Arcanics come in a variety of appearances, and, and some of them, in including our protagonist, look fully human, even though they're not. But others, such as the character Kippa, have clear animal attributes like fox ears and a foxtail. There are also talking cats who are distinct from the ancients and are called Ubasti. Uh, properly, they're the children of Ubasti. And this name derives from the ancient Egyptian goddess Bast or Bastet or Ubaste, who is depicted as a cat. I think if you've been to any museum with an Egyptian collection, then you have seen a sculpture of Ubaste. But even while these are just cats, right, they're not anthropomorphic except for having sentience and language. There's a weird thing going on with their tails. As they age, they grow more tails, and so an old wizened cat will have four, while a kitten has only one tail. This is cute. It's quite charming. These groups don't all get along, and that's going to be the driving force of our protagonist's adventures, and we'll meet her in just a minute, I promise. Essentially, there is a division between the mundane humans and the magical everybody else. And this is a recent-ish change as human culture has been leaning more and more into something that we would call science. And so there is an element of the classic magic versus science fantasy trope, or urban fantasy trope especially, here. 
And as human culture becomes more interested in classifying and categorizing the world, naturally, they become more interested in controlling the world and in containing magic. There's more to it than this, of course, as the human science actually has something to do with harvesting magic from arcanics, and the humans are able to use this to heal themselves and even resurrect the dead, and some other things as well. This science of magic is the special domain of a religious organization called the Kumaya. Kumayan clerics are all female, and they have a strict hierarchy that is basically modeled on the medieval Dominican order. The leader is called the Mother Superior, and then beneath her there are Inquisitrixes. That is bad Latin, though, I will say. That X should become a C when it's rendered into a plural form. And then there are Witch Nuns, which is uh, on the nose for sure. And if you are thinking here about the Bene Gesserit from Dune, I don't think you're wrong. And Dune keeps cropping up in all these other books, so maybe we should go read Dune at some point. Okay, so that's the setting. Well, it's not actually all of the setting, but it is as much as we need to get going. Our story begins in the human city of Zamora. Of course, Zamora is a a real place in Spain. It's It's a gorgeous place. Actually, it's full of awesome Romanesque architecture. But this imaginary Zamora is not the real one, though it is also full of gorgeous stone architecture. Zamora is also a place in the Conan stories, and it is even mentioned in the book that we're doing next month. So I don't know, maybe this could be some sort of new Atas drinking game. But all right, we we start at a slave auction. It's a, a very high-end slave auction being held in private in a swank Art Nouveau drawing room. The slave being auctioned is a young woman with only one arm, and we learn here that although she looks human, she is actually an arcanic, and her name is Micah Halfwolf, and you've probably guessed, she's our protagonist. And she's on quite an adventure. So the slave auction is interrupted by a Kumayan witch nun who wants Micah because of a a symbol that she has on her chest. It's like a a, a brand or a birthmark. It's definitely not a tattoo. And this symbol has some significance to the order. Micah and some of the other arcanics are then taken to a Kumayan facility and they're held in a, a dungeon. And of course, this should be bad, right? But it turns out that Micah wanted to come here, and she allowed herself to be captured as a means of infiltrating this facility so she can carry out some vengeance on the witch nun who runs this place. It also turns out that Micah has a crazy scary superpower. There's a tentacled monster living in her arm that will protect her when she's in immediate jeopardy. And we'll learn more about this later. Right now, it breaks her out of jail, and she tears up the place like an action movie hero and makes her way upstairs to the boss fight. Now, the boss, it turns out, is someone who knows Micah, who who knew her when she was a kid. This is something of a a family friend from a a time before the most recent war between Arcanics and humans made it impossible for Arcanics and humans to be friends. And we come to understand that the boss, her name is Yvette, by the way. Uh, We come to understand that Yvette and Micah's mother were a a sort of Indiana Jones team searching for ancient magical relics from a legendary figure called the Shaman Empress. And of course, they found one. Uh, It's a mask, and this mask has messed things up pretty bad. Yvette has this mask, and it's given her some golem-like qualities. It's basically her precious. But when they found the mask, there was some kind of accident that Micah doesn't really remember but which took her arm and also put this monster inside of her. 
But this is a boss fight. And so Micah and Yvette get to the business of actually fighting. And Micah wins. And she kills Yvette, which was her plan from the start. And then she runs off with this mask. And now our story splits in half as we follow Micah and her adventures with a little girl, Fox Arcanic, and also a a cat. And that's one half of the story. And then the other half of the story is what's going on with the Kumayan Order. And all we really need to know about that part of the story is that the Mother Superior is very interested in this mask and also in Micah. And so she resurrects Yvette and uses Yvette's golem-like connection to this mask in order to track it. Micah and her friends make it out of Zamora, but they are being hunted by Yvette and the the Mother Superior, and there are some elaborate schemes here that are are just really a lot of fun. One of the obstacles here, though, is Micah herself. You see, she has a monster inside her, and that monster needs to eat people, and she cannot always control it, so she's kind of a threat to people who are with her. Fortunately, there are enough human soldiers chasing them, but they do have some close encounters with Micah almost eating her friends, or really the monster that lives inside her almost eating her friends. And now that they are out of human territory, we're going to learn a little bit more about the ancients. There are two countries in ancient territory. There's the Dawn Court and the Dusk Court, and they differ. They disagree about how involved they should be in the, the world at large and how involved they should be with humans. And, of course, because of her encounter with Yvette, Micah now has more questions than she has answers about her past and about her mother and so on. And so she is still on a quest, even though she's carried out her vengeance. But they run into a powerful lord of the Dusk Court, a a guy who is basically an angel with raven wings, and his name is Corwin, which is the the Latin word for raven, which I think is a a nice touch. And Corwin, it's actually spelled with a V, not a W, so probably we're supposed to call it Corvin, even though a V in Latin is pronounced like a W. We'll call him Corvin, I guess, until I screw up because I want to pronounce it like Latin. Okay, Corvin is here to help, of course, and they should definitely super trust him, except that he isn't here to help and they definitely should not trust him at all. So now Mike has been captured by the Dusk Court, and they are going to kill her because they are scared of this monster inside her, and also because they don't want to deal with the humans that she's brought down on them. And so here I think is a good time to pause and talk about this monster business. The monster inside of Micah is a sentient creature. It's a person, and he's not the only one, though he is the only one who spiritually inhabits the body of a humanoid person. These monsters are called Old Ones, or Old Gods, and that's definitely some Lovecraftian stuff there. Uh, They're also called Ghosts sometimes, though, and and they can be massive creatures who materialize out in the ancient lands, but also aren't really there and don't take notice of humanoid characters, or, or perhaps even the world at all. These are regarded really as shadows of the Old Gods, not the Old Gods themselves, uh, kind of like reflections, I guess. But legends and myths suggest that they were once a very real material presence in the world, and that they nearly destroyed it. Something we learn from the old one who's dwelling inside of Micah is that they would very much like to come back to the world. And we also learn that this particular old one has been dwelling inside Micah's ancestors for generations, uh, that he, he only came to dwell in Micah when her mother died. And when Micah is drugged up by the dust court, she's able to access some some memories of her childhood that she just didn't have before. 
And so she learns the name of the monster, which in turn allows her to control it. It's a good urban fantasy trope there. And they enter into a kind of symbiosis. And of course, this is just in time because the Kumaya are here now and there's some fighting to be done and a tentacled monster could be useful. Micah and her monster end up in another boss fight, and this time it's with the mother superior of the Kumaya, who, it turns out, is actually another old one who's masquerading as human. We don't get very much about this explained to us. Uh, This volume, I mean, you know, it has to end on a game changer, right? So that we'll want to keep reading. But the mother superior old one claims that Micah's old one has betrayed their kind in favor of mortals. And I imagine that we will get a lot more on that in later volumes. And there is more going on here. The Mother Superior Old One exists in the world without being tethered to a humanoid body because of what Micah's mother and Yvette discovered when they were playing Indiana Jones. The Half-Wolves brought this Old One into the world. What's more, the, the mask that they found can keep this door open and let even more Old Ones in which we are meant to infer would be very bad for the world and very bad for our heroes. So there's a big fight with multiple groups, and in the end, Micah and her friends make it out of the dust court with a little help from Corvin, who had previously betrayed them. But the dust court doesn't just shrug its shoulders here, right? They're going to go after Micah. And here in this last panel of the the book, we learn that one of Micah's old friends is now helping them, and, and maybe actually always has been. And that's the end of this volume. There are a number of themes that Lou is laying the groundwork for in this first volume. It's an ambitious story just in its thematic scope, besides existing in this massive world and with a a really epic plot. But since this is still an ongoing story, I think I'm just going to make more of a quick catalog of the themes that I see getting started here. And I'll begin with one that I think shows up pretty fully formed, and that's wrestling with inner demons. I mean, this is literally what's going on with Micah, right? She has a monster living inside her that needs to eat people and doesn't care if those people are Micah's friends or not. But there is also a metaphorical inner demon here, too, and and that's Micah's quest for vengeance. More than anything, she wants to kill Yvette for taking her mother from her, and Micah is willing to pay any price for this. And much of the first volume is flashbacks that focus on Micah's friendship with Toya, who tries to talk Micah out of this quest because it will destroy her, uh, both literally and metaphorically. And at the end of this volume, it's Toya who has become a a part of the dust court and is leading the efforts to stop Micah because Micah's thirst for vengeance threatens to destroy the whole world by letting loads of other monsters, other old ones, in. We see the struggle as well with the character of Yvette, though maybe we shouldn't really call it a struggle. As a result of this archaeological expedition years ago, Yvette now has to consume the body parts of Arcanics in order to stay alive. And of course, she's also obsessed with this mask. And really, I think we should say that she's enthralled to it. This is very much an addiction, which is certainly an inner demon that many of us have to wrestle with. The second theme that is clear right from the start is dehumanization and racism. It is a fantasy world, and so we're dealing with several genetically distinct sentient species, what D&D likes to call races. And in this world, they don't all get along very well. And there are different varieties of this, different ways in which they don't all get along. Nobody seems to like Arcanics very much. Uh, Certainly, the Kumaya want to oppress Arcanics for their own 
wicked purposes. And as they've come to more or less rule the human lands, they've created a culture that thrives on seeing the Arcanics as inhuman, uh, as not quite people, really. And one of the things that Lou does really well here is to depict this as a process. We learn that this wasn't always the case, that humans and Arcanics have formerly lived in the same society and in the same political community, and they've gotten along just fine. But the religious rhetoric of the Kumaya has changed that and, and, and done so rather rapidly, really just over the course of a generation, it seems. And there are dissidents, there are people who resist this change and who do so on religious grounds, in fact. And so there is something here of a, a dispute between what in American politics, at least, we think of as the religious right and the religious left. And the equivalent of the religious left here is operating something akin to the Underground Railroad to get Arcanics safely out of Cumayan hands. And they're doing this at great risk to themselves. And I guess this is probably a good place to, to pause and talk a little bit more broadly about religion in this story. There is a lot of it. The villains in this story are a religious order, so let's start by exploring their history a little bit. We learn that they worship someone named Mariam, a, a goddess who had taken on human form and who discovered the healing powers of Lilium, which grants longer life and better quality of life as well. And Miriam lived in Galilea, and when she died, 13 apostles founded the religion and proselytized it, though it has taken them a long time to become the dominant religion in the human community. And if you're thinking that this sounds a bit like Christianity, you're right. Miriam is Mary, the mother of Christ, who lived in Galilee and was a human incarnation of God. Christ also had apostles who evangelized, who, who proselytized after his death. Now, what Lou is doing with this is not at all clear to me, and this is something I would love to talk about on the forum. It seems to me like low-hanging fruit to read this as a critique of Christianity, though maybe that is what she has in mind. There is one other important reference to Christian history in this story as well, and that's the battle at the city of Constantine. This battle was a victory for the Arcanics, but only because they had developed some kind of scary weapon of mass destruction— and this outcome led to a truce between the, the two states, though Arcanics in human territory are, are still being oppressed. And we gradually come to realize that this scary new weapon was related to the mask and the, the monster, and that the Arcanics don't really know what happened at this battle any more than the humans do. But the Kumaya claim that the Arcanics have developed this weapon in order to eradicate humans. And so it's become the keystone in their, their othering and dehumanizing rhetoric. I mean, we might even describe this as nationalist rhetoric. And where this circles back to Christian history is that the Roman Emperor Constantine was the first Christian emperor. And his reign was significant, I mean, extraordinarily significant in ceasing the persecution of Christians, but also in formally establishing one specific sect of Christianity as the mainstream quasi-official sect of the religion, as well as helping to create the organizational structure of that church. And I don't think this parallel is coincidental. But there is more going on with the real-world parallels of the Kumaya. They believe that Mariam could see the future. She was an oracle. And the name of this order comes from a real place. There's a city in Italy called Kumai. And Kumai is where the most famous Roman oracle lived. This is the Sibylline oracle. 
And she lived in a cave near the city that was also regarded as an entrance to the underworld, the the land of the dead. And if you've read the Aeneid, then you encounter this in book six, which is uh, the greatest of the classical underworld stories. Uh, Again, I don't think this name is coincidental. I don't think it's accidental, though what Lou is doing with it is not entirely clear in just this first volume. But what jumps out to me is the connection with the entrance to the land of the dead, given that we are dealing with a story about the ghosts of old gods trying to get back into this world, and we're dealing with magic that can resurrect people. And all of these questions that I have about religion in this speculative world really have me eager to keep reading the series. And in general, I I think the world and the world building are real strengths of Monstrous. I mean, Lou does a wonderful job using the, the comics medium to construct her world. We get a mix of internal monologue with omniscient character dialogue. And we also get, at the end of issues two through six, little lessons about the history of this imaginary world on the last page. And these are just delightful. Lou gives us glimpses into the classroom of Professor Tam Tam, who is a cat, a a child of Ubasti, who wears an ascot and has some old-timey spectacles. And these scenes are really helpful for building the world, but they're also just fun. There's always something silly going on, such as making chocolate-covered mice. But of course, because it's a comic, the art is also doing a lot of the heavy lifting in building the world. And Sana Takeda's work is just spectacular. Spectacular. And she's got a tough task. It's a huge cast of characters across different species and different cultures, and she has to draw a lot of different locations as well. And all of it is gorgeous. Zamora, and in the human culture more generally, has an Art Nouveau style to it that makes sense with the airship. And this gives the whole thing some steampunk visuals. But the ancients get a wholly different style of art that really resembles the, the modern temple architecture in Thailand. And the Palace of the Dawn Court looks very much like the famous Wat Binchama Bofit, just dialed up to 11. And still again, the antique culture where Yvette and Micah's mother found the mask looks very much like ancient Egyptian architecture. And all of this makes the world come alive, really makes it pop. And I'll say that the, the art is so awesome that it's really impossible for me to pick a favorite panel. But if I had to pick, I would choose the first glimpse that we get of Zamora on page four. This is a great establishing shot that tells us nearly everything we need to know about this fantasy world in order to to buy in enough to want to get to the more elaborate world building that's going to come later. What we get here is a view of one city street, probably not at the center of the city, but it is still a bustling street with a lot of foot traffic, and it also has a horse-drawn cart. And this tells us about technology, and it allows us to make some inferences based on that. But we also see that even though the city is built of stone and appears Byzantine, or or maybe it's Venetian, there is much about the city that is new. There are metal chimneys carrying black smoke into the sky, and there's a, a glass arcade on the right of the panel. And when we look closely at the street, we see that there are cables stretching over it, connecting the buildings. And these are carrying electricity, or, or, or at least something like electricity anyway. And all of this is conveyed without a single speech bubble, and it is just wonderful. The covers, too, are absolutely magnificent. My favorite is for the first issue, which then also supplies the cover for the whole volume. The foreground of this is Micah wearing a white robe with an intricate floral pattern on it that would make uh, an amazing tattoo if anyone's in the market for a new tattoo. But the background is what really draws me in. And this is an image of a figure from antiquity. It's probably this shaman empress. And it's done in an elaborate Art Nouveau style in bronze. 
And there's some really interesting iconography on this that doesn't mean anything to me right now, but which seems like a, a big tease for things to come. And in a lot of ways, this entire first volume is a big tease for big things to come. And so I think this is a good place to bring my review to a close. I really love this book, and I'm glad to have read it. And I'm looking forward to talking about it with my wife when we go out tonight. And I'm also looking forward to talking about it with you, too. So I hope that you will come visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com. I am especially eager to talk about religion in this speculative world. And I'd also love to know what your favorite panel is. I mean, I think every single panel in this book could be picked as someone's favorite. It's all so gorgeous. But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Next time, we're going to be reading the only full-length Conan novel written by Robert E. Howard himself, The Hour of the Dragon. This is the book that won our Sword and Sorcery vote on Patreon. It actually beat out some pretty stiff competition, too. I'm looking forward to talking about that next month. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.